0: Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm the host of A People's Theology, Mason Menega. In this episode, I talk with Dr. Miguel de latore Miguel is a professor of social ethics and Latinx studies at Iliff School of Theology. He's also the author of the recent book, Decolonizing Christianity, Becoming Badass Believers. Also musically featured throughout this episode is Sherwood. Sherwood is an indie pop band from California. You can get connected with Miguel So deceiving and bringing you down to feel this
1: lack of loyalty. Cause you were a song in my head, the warmth of the sheets in my bed, a story forever
0: told, but never told. De La Torre. And uh, Dr. Miguel, I'm sure you do many things in the world. I don't know all about you, but you are uh, the professor of uh, social ethics at I Live School of Theology. Uh, but uh, with that said, who is Dr. Miguel De La Torre to Dr. M- Miguel De Latore?
1: <laughs> well, first of all, thank you for having me on your program. To answer your question, I really don't know. Um, Miguel de la Torre seems to be a very complex, contradictory figure uh who is always wrestling with himself. Um, and I say that because um my very background is 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 very complex. I mean, I was raised a fundamentalist um Christian. Um, I ran for public office as a conservative Republican. So And I had a major shift in the way I see and I think and I understand the world around me, Um, but I'm always still wrestling with that past um, and and how much it has um, colonized my very thinking and how I'm trying to undo that colonization.
0: Wow. Uh, See, I don't, maybe I missed part of that in, in the book if you wrote about it, but I didn't realize that that's part of your story. I mean, I also grew up in that like very conservative evangelical world. And so I would imagine writing a book like this, you're really diving into not only obviously like the history and theology of all of this, but in a lot of ways, it's super personal for you.
1: No, it is. It definitely is. Um, And when I write about this, I'm not writing so much as some academic in an ivory tower, but as someone who was actually, uh, quote unquote, on the front lines of the evangelical uh, movement to save America for Jesus. Um, So so part of that um, obviously comes out in my book and providing an insight that outsiders from those movements probably um, have not uh, been able to grasp.
0: So speaking of which, you recently wrote this book called Decolonizing Christianity, Becoming Badass Believers. Great subtitle, by the way. So as we kind of just have mentioned, this is a very deeply personal book to you, but also you obviously are an academic, and so there is a little bit of that going on in the book. What did you maybe learn theologically or even historically while you were writing the book that maybe you didn't know about white Christian nationalism before, again, theologically or historically?
1: Yeah. Well, I, I think we need to first understand how this book um, fits into the overall trajectory of my thinking. Um, it is the second book of a trilogy. The first book was called Burying White Privilege um, and uh, Resurrecting the Badass Christianity. Um, and, and in that book, um, I, I really began to wrestle with um, understanding why um, white Christians um, were so gun ho in supporting the previous president. this second book, the one that you're referring to, Decolonizing Christianity, was written as the election campaigning was going on in early 2020 and just as the coronavirus was beginning to make its appearance. And, and, and those two books together really helped me understand how my own thinking um, as a Latino man has been so colonized that I begin to accept this white Christian theology, which has always been designed to exclude me and people like me, still is so influential in my thinking and in my life. Um, I'm in the process now, as a matter of fact, this morning I was was working on it on the third part of that trilogy book, which is gonna be called the uh, Apartheid, um, Apartheid America, a Badass Christian Response, which looks at where we are going in a post-Trump era,
0: that will be fascinating. You're, you're sort of writing your own sort of Lord of the Rings trilogy. I mean, there's a whole <laughs> the whole world right there, um, uh, just in the way that Tolkien wrote an entire world. So th- that kind of talks a little bit about the context around the book. In the either that first book or this now the second book or even now the the third book that you're writing, is there anything like historically or theologically that you're, that you're like, wow, I didn't know that. About white Christian nationalism, that even though you obviously have personal experience in it, that you were like, "Wow, I, that still was very interesting and fascinating and something I didn't know before."
1: Yeah. I think in the second book, and I think in I think it's the second chapter where I I, I outline the rise of uh, white nationalist Christianity, starting with 1940 forward. All that was what, what was fascinating to me because you know, being, being that I. Um, I wasn't around in the 1940s, but definitely I was around in the 60s and 70s and 80s when this um, white nationalist Christianity was really spreading throughout the country. And I was part of that to really understand the historical foundation of that spread and and the historical theological justification for that spread. um, I thought that was fascinating because when you're living through it, you don't really realize how this is a continuation Um, specifically for me, of of a white supremacist move to maintain um, the power, privilege and profits of a dominant culture.
0: And you don't really like dive super deep into it, but there you definitely like talk about it at the beginning of the book where a lot of people that maybe grew up conservative and evangelical and were a part of that religious right movement don't quite realize that the at least this modern adaptation of the religious right did not necessarily start with Roe v. Wade and abortion. It was prior to that. It was about segregation. And Mm -hmm. again, you touch on that in the book and things like that I, I find very, very interesting because I think a lot of people don't really realize the way that white supremacy has been at the foundation of Christian nationalism and the religious right and that whole movement, uh, especially starting in the sixties and seventies.
1: Well, absolutely. I mean, this goes back to the very foundation of this Republic. You know, if um, we worship a white God and a white Jesus, um, th- therefore, you know, kind of paraphrasing a little bit of what Mary Daly once said, then uh, white men become gods um, and whiteness becomes divinity. And, and, and what this does, it provides that spiritual justification for the unearned power, privilege, and profits of the dominant culture. So spirituality in the form of this white nationalist Christianity becomes crucial so that evil things can be done while still looking in the mirror and seeing it as somehow God's will and the doing of the good. Um, it, it becomes a mind trick that allows um, the dominant culture to participate in oppressive structures and yet feel good about itself.
0: That's the other thing I really loved about your book is that you don't make it out that white Christian nationalism is some sort of exception in American history or that it's only a recent manifestation, but that it's in the very DNA of America. It started at the beginning of this republic. And that I find really, really helpful in order to put all of, especially with, with Trumpism, to put that all in context, that this is not just a little blip in the history of America. This is a very much a part of the v- fabric of America.
1: Absolutely. I mean, the last thing I would want anybody to think is that somehow Trump ushered in this new era of uh, Christian nationalism. I mean, it begins when the pilgrims um, invade a a village and and massacres everyone. And in the diary of the captain who led the the massacre writes, um, you know, that the Indians deserved it because they were practicing satanic um, uh, rituals. Uh, you know the, the the demonization of the other, based on them being other, goes back to the pilgrims. So so no, this is not something new. It just so happens that Trump is able to reintroduce, and this is the theme of this of the third book, uh, this apartheid, this separateness from these other others.
0: To get a little bit more personal. Again, you are finishing up the third book of this trilogy. You've written books prior to this, so you are no stranger to writing things and writing books. What did you maybe learn about yourself as you wrote this book? Uh, Decolonizing Christianity that, you know, maybe you didn't know about yourself before, but a little bit, you know more on a, a personal level than something more theological or historical?
1: Those are usually difficult questions to answer because every time I write a book, it, it exposes a part of myself and changes me to, to, to a certain degree. I think what these three books have helped me do is, is, is not to shy away from, from controversial topics and conversations. In this, in, the, in this particular book, the one that we refer, uh, the decolonizing book, I, I begin by saying, that this conversation is not really for white people, but it's rather for other people of color. And that shift in my scholarship to change who my audience is, has freed me to just say things um, unapologetically. Uh, We know that when when, uh, a group that has been marginalized and disenfranchised are together by themselves, they have a very different conversation than when white people are present, you know, and for half of the population who who, who are female, you know, we always know, you know, women have always said that when they're only speaking among themselves, they have a very different conversation than if there's a man present. The same thing works with race and ethnicity. So what I'm trying to do, how, how I've changed my scholarship is that I'm trying to now focus my writing to people of color and as if there were no white people in the room knowing that white people, you know, will actually read the book, but but that's not my audience. And therefore, I don't have to be apologetic. I don't have to sugarcoat things. Um, and, and I think that that makes the book a little more bolder and more difficult to read uh, because I'm not trying to to make it easier to read.
0: We'll definitely talk a little bit more about that later on. Let's dive a little bit more into the content of the book. The first part of the book, you outline the history of white Christian nationalism in America. And I would imagine that most of my listeners are somewhat familiar of the more recent history of white Christian nationalism, like we mentioned before with like Roe v. Wade and et cetera, et cetera. But can you describe the history of white Christian nationalism that has led us to where we're at today? So, you know, maybe back up like 200, 250 years. Um, how, how do we get to the rise of the religious right? And even now with Trumpism and, and all of the recent white Christian nationalism, how do we get to this point?
1: Well, obviously, uh, religion and white Christianity has been used to justify the 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 decimation of the indigenous people, the slavery of African people, the invasion of Latin American countries to steal their raw materials and cheap labor under gunboat diplomacy and the creation of banana republics. That's all part of US history. And and, and I really don't go into that in the book uh, because all that is a different type of Christianity for a different era. The type of Christianity we're dealing with today and the book uh, pinpoints it to 1940. And, and that's when the Great Depression is coming to an end, white industrialists uh, are being blamed for the Great Depression. And, and a minister by the name of uh, Fairfield gives this sermon at a gathering of the titans of industry in New York City at the Waldorf at the Astoria, in where he says that the churches need to be the preachers for capitalism. And and, and at this point, we see a merging of capitalism and Christianity, and where capitalism becomes God's ordained form of economic structures for a country. And the rise of this economic Christianity uh, begins to um, embrace more fundamentalist-type Christians. Um, So you have this marriage of convenience that really much takes us throughout the the, the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, you know, with the rise of the religious right. Um, yes, we believe in low taxation, but also we're against abortion. And, 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 and the person who believes those two things are usually the more conservative Christians. So you have this, this very convenient marriage that goes on. What the Trump years did was begin to, 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 to bring about a divorce in this convenient marriage. In where the populism um, takes root over and against um, large um, corporations and, and, and multinational corporations. Um, and and with, when this begins to happen, um, you have the, these uh, Christians who are being used by big business now rebel against big business. And what you have left is a very powerful. Uh, minority group um, that has a tremendous degree of voice in the political process, and and, that, and I'm giving this this history like in you know less than two minutes when it's a lot more complex and there's a lot more players going on, but but the fact that the Pew brothers um, back in the in the 40s and 50s are the ones that discovered this unknown tent revivalist known by the name of Billy Graham. And literally lifts him up to a national icon who not only preaches salvation, but preaches against uh, all types of social movements like the the New Deal, uh, the, um, the Great Society, the New Frontier, and the Civil Rights Movement. It shows how this marriage of big business and Christianity takes place very early on.
0: You briefly mentioned this, and I want to dive in a little bit more on this. But in many ways, the the recent white nationalism that we've seen, especially with Trump and all of that, is not unique at all. But there are some ways it does seem kind of unique, or this particular moment in history is a little unique from other uh, moments of history throughout American history. Can you talk a little bit about how the Trump white Christian nationalism might be a little unique? versus other previous types mm-hmm. of white nationalism throughout American history?
1: Well, well, obvious, all movements are constantly evolving. They're, they're constantly changing to meet the context of its time. Um, and, and I think what the Trump movement has done, um, that is, you could say unique, that is a little bit different, that that is evolving in a different direction. Number one, as I mentioned, is the separation from big multinational corporations and where they're standing on their own two feet. But 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 more importantly, I think, is this being um, adverse to democratic principles. I mean, before, if you were a white Christian, you believe in the Constitution and in democracy, and you may lose an election, but that just means you you know four years later, you just work harder to get your person elected. Now, what we're seeing is that um, this Faithful Christian minority is called by God to impose their political will on their ma- on the majority heathen uh, the, the heathen majority. So the fact that I am willing to storm the capital and overturn a, 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 a an election, a fair and open election is God's will because that election is bringing in a heathen, a godless uh, political regime, and God would want me to go ahead and make sure that godless, heathen regime does not take hold. So so I think what's different is that the way this new nationalist Christianity is operating is very anti-democratic, anti-US constitution, and pro-violent you know, that violence is necessary. Uh, a recent um, survey, uh, survey was conducted and I have it in, 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 this, in this third book I'm writing in where the majority of um, conservative Christians, uh, not the majority, I'm sorry, about 30% of conservative Christians believe that violence is um, acceptable. It, it is a reasonable approach to maintain the will of God in national politics. You know, that's a scary number. It's not a fringe. We're not talking about fringe groups anymore. Fringe groups are now the center.
0: It also reminds me the sort of uniqueness, if you will, of the Trump white nationalism. Something that I found recently that I think does make it a little unique. And maybe you've heard this or have talked about this before. But there was a recent, I think it was a Pew Research article survey that came out that found that the Christians who, over the four years of Trump's presidency, became more pro-Trump, they also found that their religiosity as an evangelical Christian decreased meaning that they went to church less, that they participated in church life less. So it's really interesting how they became more pro-Trump and even more identified with that evangelical category. However, the religiosity became less distinct. And that, I think, is fascinating, that... Over those four years of Trump, the evangelical category, although it was still like this probably prior, but it's becoming very, very obvious that the evangelical category, even among people who identify as evangelicals, is simply a political category and has really not much to say about their religiosity and their their theology which I find really fascinating. And I think that is really starting to emerge out of Trumpism, that that probably was reality before, but that really um, exacerbated that. Well, we're
1: talking about the evolution of movements. Then evangelical Christianity, white evangelical Christianity in and of itself, which was once a movement of saving people for Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. And and the word evangelical is emphasized as going out to the world and making disciples of all nations um, has now really changed in where that becomes less important. And what really becomes important is making sure that America remains a Christian nation, not that it ever was, but in their mind, that becomes the new evangelism, evangelism, So there's no longer the evangelism for the gospel message, there's the evangelism for Americanism. And hence, evangelical, while maintaining that religious facade, is really now more political ideology, especially when you have in this last election, was it about 70, close to 75% of white evangelicals voted for Trump, uh, which which, which is an unbelievable number. That 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 this has nothing to do with spirituality. It has to do with basically with, with politics.
0: So this book came out this year, and you had talked about how when you were writing it, it was sort of at the advent of COVID and in the presidential election you know, you, that's when you were writing it. What are recent examples of white Christian nationalism that are happening in America that have maybe happened after you've released this book, or at least after you had been done writing this book? What are examples that you would have like, you know, if you're writing this book right now, what would you have put into this book and talked about in this book as really significant moment, recent moments of white Christian nationalism?
1: Well, it's interesting because when I wrote that, when I finished that book, I thought that was going to be the last book. That's said it, It's done. But since that book was written, um, especially the storming of the Capitol, right. um, it was Which is
0: still hard to believe that happened this year. Like it just feels so long ago. It,
1: it was the storming of the Capitol that led me to really begin writing this third book. It was that, you know, it was that that made me stop and say, whoa. Um, the second, you know, and, it's, and, it, and it's fascinating because in the second book, you may remember there's a portion in the book where I talk about if Trump loses the election, we can expect some form of violence will occur for him to remain in power. Now, I wasn't being a prophet. I mean, uh, I, I just was at that time when I was writing this, this was so obvious because Trump has said this is what he was going to do but very few people took him at his word. So it wasn't surprising, but when it did happen, it was still very surprising and still very shocking. So, so if you're looking for the most recent example, definitely um, that is, is the example of the, the, you know, during the debate when Trump basically provides cover for the Proud Boys. Um, and, and this whole um, uh, supremacist Group becoming centralized in politics is one of those moments as well that this new book um, obviously deals with uh, as one of these moving points. The the, the recent um court decisions um, that just occurred um, are also these new these new moments that the book that this present book is dealing with that that shows that. Yes, Trump is no longer president. And he may or may not run in 2024, and that's really unimportant. But we have we are setting the stage for the rise of a Trump 2.0. And and we're setting the stage. And again, another more recent um, development since that last book. We're setting the stage by all the voter repression legislation that is going around the country that. You know, even when the even if the majority, you know, the vast majority may vote for someone else, you know, or may I'm sorry, may re- vote to reelect, let's say Biden, then the, the electoral numbers and the, and the chairmanship that's being done may not make that the case. So again, we're maybe entering an era in where the majority doesn't rule, but the minority rules uh, legally. So these are all things that are happening very recently that is forcing me to, to write this third book. And I'm really hoping it's the last one, <laughs> you know, because, you know, heaven forbid, we have to now think about what's going to happen in, after 2024. Um, but, but, but I'll be honest with you, as, as a Latino man, I am more afraid living in this country now than I was <clears throat> back in the 60s um, when, when I was first in this country.
0: You mentioned before that obviously this book was not written for white readers. You did later on talk about in the book that, and it was a very quick line, but it caught my eye. You said that white Christians must discover their own salvation and liberation. What do you mean by that? And what do you think that looks like?
1: Basically, I'm, I'm echoing the words of James Cone, an African-American uh, liberation, uh, liberation theologian. Who, who in his book, um, A Black Theology of Liberation, within the first page or so says, all white theology is satanic. Um, and, and I take him at his word because truly this white nationalist Christianity, number one, has nothing to do with Christianity and has nothing to do with Jesus Christ. And it is a perversion, a, a satanic turn of what Christianity is. So if that is true, then it cannot save anybody it cannot say people of color, and it cannot say white people. And let me just pause for a second. And every time I mention white, I'm not talking about skin pigmentation. I'm talking about an ideology of white supremacy that unfortunately meant sometimes people of color are just as white as white supremacists. But in this case, when I say white people can't be saved by this Eurocentric nationalist Christianity, I am also talking about White people with white skin pigmentation. So, how then, you know, and here's that old evangelical in me how then do white people get saved? And by save, I mean, that's also the Greek word for liberate. How do white people get liberated, get saved? It's not going to be through this white national Christianity, which is satanic. That will damn them. The only way salvation can come to white people is if they learn to bend their knees to the God of the oppressed, the Black God, the, 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 the Asian God, the, the Latinx God, the queer God, uh, the female God, you know, by, by literally learning to worship the God of those who have been oppressed, do they find their own liberation and salvation.
0: That's a full sermon right there. <laughs> That's incredible. Early on in the book, you again mentioned that this is not a book for white Christians. It really is for Christians, uh, Christian communities of color. So, for listeners of color, what would you encourage for them during these times of this really unfederated white Christian nationalism? What 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 do you offer them in this book?
1: Basically, when you said this was a personal book, uh, a personal write, a personal writing early on during our conversation. Part of that personal writing is the attempt for me to decolonize my own mind. In other words, what I am sharing with other communities of color is the struggle that I am going through in in truly rejecting this white nationalist Christianity that has always been designed to disenfranchise me and my people but has always been used as the apex of academic excellence. So how do I move away from a way of being that has been instilled in me ever since I was a child? Um, And and that's a difficult struggle. And, and, And what I try to do in the book is expose that struggle that I'm going through. And, and hoping that it may resonate with other communities of color who may be going through a similar struggle. That this white nationalist Christianity not only must be rejected, but we have to define and understand our own faith through our own cultural symbols.
0: You, and this might relate to the this next question, but obviously, the title of the book is Decolonizing Christianity. So I think that begs the question, can Christianity be decolonized?
1: I think Christianity can be decolonized. Well, let me take a step back. Obviously, Christianity is a major tool used for the colonization of people of color. I mean, if you're, if you're Black you're, and you're Christian, you could thank slavery. If you're Asian and you're a Christian, you could thank the um, colonization of Asia by the Europeans back in the 16, 1700s. If you're an indigenous, a Native American and a Christian, you could thank the genocide um, caused by white uh, settlers in, in this continent. So if we're honest with ourselves, and if we are Christian, um, that Christianity came in the form of the oppression and genocide of our people. So, so, so to say, you know, so, so some, some, some of my uh, friends in, in those circles have said, forget about decolonizing Christianity, we have to reject Christianity yeah, for the reasons I just mentioned. And I can't argue with them. And for them, and for some, that might be the best healing response. And that's okay. But for people like myself, who still believe in this message of this brown Jewish rabbi in Palestine some 2,000 years ago, and believe in those teachings, how do I return to those teachings and do those understandings? It cannot be through that white European lens. I always wonder what would happen if Paul, when he got to Macedonia, and so that vision, instead of making um, a left turn, he would have made a right turn <laughs> and gone into <laughs> Asia. We would have a very different Christianity, one that's not uh, influenced by Platonic dualism and concepts of soul and, and all that stuff. So, so the question is when Christianity moves through any society, not only does society change, but Christianity changes as well. And Christianity has radically changed by going through European countries for most of its history. And then that change has been imposed on the rest of the world. How do we move away from that colonizing emphasis of Christianity and return not only to those teachings of Jesus, but understand those teachings through our own cultures and through our own symbol? That becomes the process. Can I be successful in it? I really don't know. I'm trying. Um, Maybe the answer is the total rejection of it. But for me, that becomes difficult because that Christianity is so much part of my very being that I can't just cut it out of me. So the question becomes how, and goes back to, to the very first comment I made, how do I live in the contradiction of rejecting Christianity while embracing Christianity? You know, and here, you know, I, I think of the philosopher Miguel Dunamuno that you say, but that's a contradictory statement. I would say, of course, it's contradictory. I'm human and humans are contradictory beings to begin with.
0: You might have already answered this a little bit, but the tagline of my podcast is exploring, inspiring and liberating theologies. How do you hope that this book inspires and liberates its readers? I, I would
1: hope. That the readers for whom the book was intended, people of color would pause and re-examine what they say they believe if they're Christians And, and, and try to figure out, do I believe this because it really emphasized the message of Jesus, or do I believe this because it's part of the white culture that I grew up in? You know, to, to, to begin to be more critical of what it is that we believe or what we claim to believe. And, and, and what it has done for me is that a lot of things that I thought were true, I now realize are just cultural opinions about faith, which has no bearing on anything having to do with liberation of Christianity.
0: Last question, uh, Dr. Miguel, how can listeners get connected to you and your work? Oh,
1: I do have a website and, and, and that website has all the books I've published and most of the and pretty much all the articles I've published um, and a little bit about the kind of projects I'm working on in the future. It has links to a, a documentary I made on immigration. And soon was going to have a link to a novel that i finished and is being published. Um, and, and and the link is um, uh, www.drmigueldelatore.com.
0: Lovely. Well, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Miguel. This has just been a great conversation. Again, I think this book, in terms of kind of outlining the history of white Christian nationalism, I don't know if there's a more concise and better book to read about it. I mean, it was really great. And I also like love the the sort of constructive offerings that you make at the end of the book Um, not only for a white person like myself and how I ought to get myself saved um, but also all the different ways that you offer for readers of color who are really struggling with how can I maintain um, my faith and also understand how it's been used against a person like like themselves so anyway I I think this is an incredible book um, and thank you so much for chatting a little bit more about it Well, thank you for having me
1: on your program. I really appreciate
0: it. If you would like to connect with Miguel and Sherwood and their work, you can find links in the episode description. Thank you again for listening to another episode of A People's Theology. If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, please support the podcast at my Patreon, at patreon.com forward slash And remember friends, go and be the theology to the world that inspires and liberates.